If you want to go ahead and find Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. And I'm not going to ask you to stand or anything. I'm going to kind of do a, a preface before we get going here. Um, basically, um, if you're not familiar with the story of the promised land and the exodus and all that, we're going to go do a brief overview of that. Basically, we learn in Genesis, um, I don't remember the chapter exactly, but God calls Abraham uh, out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees is what it was called. And he was a very wealthy man. He had a lot of gold, silver, cattle, servants, sheep. He had all that stuff. God called him and said, and he was a pagan at the time, he called him and said, go to a land that I will show you. So he just starts on his journey, doesn't know where he's going, but he's confident and he has faith in God that he's going to show him. And essentially that's where we get the promised land from because God promised him a son and he promised him uh, that he would bless all nations through that son, but he also promised that his descendants would have a land that they would inhabit. So, it was called the pro- they didn't call it then, but we call it now. We refer to it as the promised land. I'm not sure if it's ever referred to that in the Bible, is it? I, I'm not positive it is, but that's what we call it. We call it the promised land because um, it was promised to Abraham. So then we find in uh, in the book of Exodus, um, we find that the children of Israel are in Egypt, uh, and they were there initially by God's plan. But then they uh, wound up being there, I believe, 400 years. They, they overstayed their due. Uh, or the time that they were supposed to be there, they were slaves uh, and they were captives. They, they were not uh, where God wanted them to be any longer. So he delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh. He caused, I believe, 10 or 12 plagues to come upon all of the Egyptians, uh, the whole country and Pharaoh and everything. Uh, and finally, Pharaoh let the Israelites go. So they see God at work in this time whenever, they're, whenever the exodus initially takes place. Whenever they're, they flee from Egypt, they're able to cross the Red Sea um, and on dry ground. And then we find that the, the waters come down and they, they crash on all of the, all Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. They die. So God delivers them there again uh, from the hands of the Egyptians. And then they're in the wilderness, and they don't, I don't think they know exactly where they're going. I think Moses uh, probably has a pretty good idea about where they're going, but I'm not sure the people do. Uh, I, honestly, I, I didn't go back and, and uh, refresh my memory on the entire Exodus story. I'm just going to give you the highlights. But So they're in the, the wilderness, and God's leading them. He's leading them by a, a, a cloud by, during the day, a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire at night. So they are following God through the wilderness. It's dry, it's hot, there's not a lot of water. Um, they come to this one place where the water was, was bitter, and they couldn't drink it. So he told Moses to throw a, a, a branch in it, and the water became sweet, and they could drink it. Uh, there was another time when they didn't have any water, and the, the children of Israel began to cry to Moses, and Moses said, Lord, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, uh, I think this is one where he struck the rock at Horeb and fresh water comes out. 
So God provides for them in these numerous times. And throughout this whole time, He's providing manna for them every morning, which manna, it means, it means what is this? They didn't know what it was. It was something they'd never seen. Uh, I, I can't really describe it to you, what it looked like, what it tastes like. The Bible does describe it. Um, but it's basically food for them. It was food for that day only. Every morning, it was on the ground for them to eat. He provided quail. If <laughs> Quail came into their camps so they could get it. Has anybody in ever, ever been quail hunting? Okay, a few of you have. And I don't know, but uh, quail don't come to you. If you're walking through a field and you're quail hunting and you don't have a dog, or even if you do have a dog, you can almost step on a quail and it won't move. And then all of a sudden it's, it just blows up and you about drop your gun because you're scared half to death. But uh, they're not, they're, it just amazes me that the quail came into their camps for them to eat. So God provided for them in this again. Um, he continues to lead them, continues to guide them through the wilderness. Um, and they get to the point, basically, um, where they're ready, very near to cross into the promised land. And that's where we're going to pick up here in Numbers chapter 13. And we're going to start verses 1 through 3. And it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, men, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which was what the land was called. So if you hear of Canaan, that is the promised land. That's what it's called. That's what it's referring to. Uh, Spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Look at that again. It says the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So God was giving this to the people of Israel. So, um, 13, we're going to go read verses 17 through 33. So drop down to 17. I'm going to try to get through this quick. Um, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. So he's, he's chosen 12 men a man from each tribe, uh, but I, if I remember correctly, there's not a man from the tribe of the Levites, but he sends Joshua instead uh, in that man's place. Um, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into Negreb and go up into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in... <clears throat> Are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Lebo Hamath. They went up into Negreb and it came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, and the descendants, and the descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. Around here, I don't, I've never been to wine country or anything or seen a lot of vineyards and stuff, but a cluster of grapes, 
you know. You could probably carry it in one hand, two hands. But they had to carry this one. It was so large, they had to tie it off and carry it on a pole between two people. I can only imagine how much it weighed. Um, so verse 23, And they carried it on a pole between two of them, so they also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshel because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Here's the report of the spies. After they've been into the land, and they, uh, they returned. So at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and stop there and, and pray. So, Fathers, come before you this night, God. We're thankful, Lord, for your faithfulness. God, for your goodness, Lord, the testimonies that have been given tonight, God, uh, of your faithfulness and just of your, your power, your glory, Lord. Uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, for just uh, inhabiting the praise of your people, God, that when we sincerely lift our voices to you, God, that you show up and you, uh, you bless us with your sweet presence, God. We pray tonight, Lord, I, I pray that you would help me, Lord, God, to, to preach your word, God, in, in the unction of the Holy Spirit, God, and the Spirit, Lord, of Joshua and Caleb this night, Lord. Um, God, I pray that You would just bless my lips, God. Um, speak through me, Lord. Be with the people here tonight, God. Enable them to hear, Lord, with spiritual ears, God, and see with spiritual eyes, God, what You have for them. Father, in Jesus' name, Amen. So, alright. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, we find here that the, the twelve spies go into the land for forty days, and I, one thing I didn't say is they chose one man out of each tribe. Now, if I was sending 12 men into a land that I didn't know anything about, I probably wouldn't send the puniest, wimpiest guys. These guys, I could imagine, were it doesn't say, but I could imagine they were probably courageous men, men who uh, had a, a, a history uh, of battles won, battles fought, um, and, and different things like that. Um, so they go into the land, and they find that it flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And they got two people carrying a pole with a gigantic cluster of grapes on it. Um, so they bring it back as evidence to Moses, to the, everyone else, what the fruit of the land was. And it says it flows with milk and honey. I, I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, but I do know that it was a rich and fertile land. It was probably a great place for growing crops. Um, obviously, grapes. Um, but I believe it was it was a much desired land in the area. Um, that there was a, a lot of things that were beneficial there. A lot of things that were sought after. And certainly, things that would be helpful for the children of Israel. Um, in fact, it was, it was such a great land, and this amazes me, I thought about this, it was such a great land that there were five or six different people, tribes of people, if you will, that lived there. Five or six different groups of people. 
But God wanted this land for one group of people. And that, that just amazed me that it was good enough for that many people, but He wanted to give it to His children. So, so they, they come back with a report of what the land is like. How, how rich and lush it is. How fertile the soil is. Uh, probably how nice the rivers are and all this. And obviously they bring back part of the fruit uh, of, the, of the land. And we get to verse 28. And it says, However, comma, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Now when I, when I read that, so they, we've got such a great, awesome land, but the people in the land are strong. That's, that's in my mind, that's, that's what that is. It's, it's their first excuse. And I didn't tell you guys my title, but I want to, I want to preach tonight on this thought, the excuses of the Exodus. So, so their first thing is, however, but Moses, but everybody in the congregation, the people are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. So they have fortified cities, very large cities. We find out later in Joshua, the book of Joshua, that the first city the children of Israel come to uh, is Jericho. And we find that it is a very big, fortified city, probably one of the biggest and strongest cities in the day. Um, so there are uh, strong, the people are strong, the cities are fortified and large. And then we get to the end of verse 28. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. One thing, I, I used to be in sales. One thing I learned in sales is that very, very uh, rarely when you're, when you're trying to close a sale or anything, does anybody, get, the first thing they tell you, the first reason they don't want to buy or whatever, that's not the first reason they give you. That's not the real reason. Uh, it's generally the reason that they think you want to hear. Like, no, I, I can't do this or I don't want to do this because of this. That's not generally not the real reason. Generally, you get to the second or third rebuttal, and that is where you find the real reason. And I believe that the real reason is right here. So I'm going to read 28 again. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, I believe that right there, that is pointing us to the real reason. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. If you do a little bit of study, you'll find that the descendants of Anak were giants. Um, they were people. Uh, you can you can probably find anywhere from eight to sixteen feet tall. Uh, they were very big people. Uh, what I did find uh, in a little bit of a research that I did on them uh, that they could have been potentially the sons of Anak or descendants of Anak were fourteen to sixteen feet tall. Uh, in the 1950s, they found in uh, modern-day, uh, well, I guess it's not even Turkey anymore, or is it? Yeah, it's Turkey. Uh, modern-day Turkey, they were doing some uh, road construction there, and they found tombs of giants there. They found several where the femur, which is the top part of your leg bone, was 47 inches long. That's four feet tall. So that's basically up to my shoulder almost, 
of a person's leg, half of their leg bone. Um, that just blows my mind. They found these uh, uh, skeletons. Uh, I was going to think thinking about showing pictures of them, but I didn't tonight for the kids' sake. But uh, skele- there's men, archaeologists, crouching down beside digging out these skeletons, and these skeletons are literally as big as a man crouched down. Gigantic. Um, just amazing how, how big these people were. Um, and if we, we go back and we find in Genesis uh, that where these people probably descended from uh, were from uh, what, what they call the Nephilim, which is where uh, the, it, it calls it the sons of God, which I believe are fallen angels, uh, had children with, with women. Um, there is some debate on that, but, but it says that that's, that that's where, that most people believe that's where giants initially came from, but they were giants nonetheless. Um, so I, that I believe that that was the real reason why they didn't want to go into the promised land, why they didn't want to go ahead and go in and and take over the promised land. Um, so if if I can. I want to talk tonight about a few giants that could be in our lives. Uh, one one thing also, I guess, I don't believe that the Canaan or the Promised Land. I don't believe that it's a, in this story. I don't believe it's a picture of heaven. Uh, I don't believe there's going to be battles to fight in heaven. Uh, I don't believe, uh, you know, when we get to heaven, it's just I believe it's going to be a lot a lot of worship of God, you know, of the Lord. Uh, there's not going to be battles to fight. There's not going to be, uh, you know, stuff to do uh, like that. So I, I believe it's a picture of, I guess, if you will, the abundant life, a victorious life in Christ. That's what I believe Canaan or the promised land is a picture of. Uh, John 10.10 10 says that the thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus speaking, he said, I came that they can have life and have it more abundantly. And I believe that Canaan... Or the promised land is a picture of the abundant life, the victorious Christian living. Um, I knew this morning, I, God confirmed this to me, I, I kind of felt, I, I've kind of had this thought for a sermon for a while, and God never really allowed me to make notes or even preach it. But this morning, uh, whenever Pastor talked about going to, uh, the Derby Panthers football games. And he says there's 5,000 people there, but at any given moment, there's only 22 on the field playing, maybe 40 or 50 that are involved in the whole game. So there's 5,000 spectators, 40 participants. Um, I guess tonight, what I want to get across, and what if the Lord will help me convey this and encourage us, to uh, become spectators, become, uh, or I'm sorry, become uh, participants. <laughs> Don't become a spectator. Become a participant and, uh, and, and gain that victorious Christian life, that victorious Christian living, that abundant life. But I want to talk about some giants in our lives tonight. Um, this first one isn't really a giant. Uh, I guess it wouldn't be called the giant of ministry, but that's the first thing I thought of was, was ministry, and I know our pastor uh, and, and even Pastor Branson 
have talked about it many times. You know, it's encouraged me that, you know, ministry sometimes that we just we feel so small, so unable, so incapable of doing things, uh, and we can get discouraged. Um, we feel like we're not good enough. We're not ever going to be good enough that we don't do the, do enough of this or do enough of that. Um, and, and, and I believe that there's, I don't know what you would call this giant, but it would be a lie is what it would be. One that uh, wants to keep you discouraged, wants to, wants to cause anxiety and worry in your life. Uh, you know, but one thing that, that our pastor has, has said many times that nonetheless, that God knew that you were going to fall. He knew you were going to fail. He knew you were going to be unfaithful at times. He knew your shortcomings, but He still called you to do the ministry work. And that's something that spoke to my heart many times because even in my failures and my, and my weaknesses and, and my defeats, God knew it was going to happen, but He still called me. <coughs> Excuse me. He still called me. So, um, that, that's just something I wanted to hit on real quick. One of the giants in our lives, I believe, that uh, it, I believe it can be a big giant, <clears throat> very tough to overcome. It would be uh, a giant. These are kind of closely related. The giant of unforgiveness or the giant of broken relationship. Now, it'd be a, that could be husband and wife. That could be brother uh, brothers, that could be friends, that could be a, a brother or sister in the church, but I, I believe that uh, there's few things <clears throat> that can be more intimidating than having, than knowing you need to reconcile a relationship with someone. Uh, I, I, I believe that that's a, that that can be a huge giant in our life, um, and really, what most of it comes down to is pride. We don't want to reconcile that relationship with that person because we're prideful. We think, God, I really didn't do anything wrong, so why should I have to go to that person? You know, God, if I go to them, what if they're not even thinking that and they're thinking I did didn't they don't even know I did it, but this may be my attitude towards them or or whatever. They don't even know about it, God. But it's it's a pride thing, uh, and and I believe that uh, scripture bears out in Matthew five twenty three <clears throat> that if we're not in right standing with an offended brother or sister, that we cannot be in right standing with God. Matthew five twenty three says, so if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. Period. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So, an offended brother or sister means that you are the one who was on the offense that offended them. They're the one that may have hard feelings against you, but you're the one responsible to go. And reconcile with them. And I believe right there that that picture of go, I believe that's a picture of grace. We shouldn't 
message them on Facebook. We shouldn't text message them. We should probably shouldn't even call them, to be honest. If you've got something, or if your brother has something against you and you've offended them, what's, what's wrong with the old-fashioned way and going and ringing their doorbell, knocking on their door? Is it pride? I think most of the times it is. But I believe that, 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 that reconciling a relationship or unforgiveness, uh, even if you have unforgiveness in your heart also, uh, the two are kind of linked, kind of close together, but <clears throat> even unforgiveness. Well, God, they, somebody wronged me. You know, somebody did this and that and the other to me. So, I mean, I understand some things are big deals. But a lot of the stuff we get upset about, who cares? Lay down your stinking pride and, and forgive them. You know, are you not human also? Do you not make mistakes also? I mean, I think we just we need to be real with ourselves uh, and realize that uh, how can we hold somebody else to a, a higher standard than we hold ourselves to? <coughs> Excuse me. So, but I believe that 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 is a big giant, a, a, a giant of, of broken relationships and a giant of unforgiveness. Both of those will keep you out of a right standing relationship with God. God tells you to leave your gift at the altar, go reconcile, and then come back and talk to Him. So, another giant. The giant of sexual immorality. We live in a culture now that we are bombarded nearly every minute with, with sex. Everything. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. You turn on the TV, commercials, what do you see? Sex. You, tur- you get on, online, uh, you know, even ads in the top of a Facebook page or YouTube or whatever. I was on a running website looking at, at a, a race schedule, and there was, I don't even remember, it was some, like, I, I don't even know what it was advertising, but the women needed to put more clothes on, you know? Uh, it's everywhere. Even this morning, I was uh, had a few minutes before I had to leave the church. Got on Facebook for a minute, and I was scrolling through my news feed, and I saw, you know, the suggested friends deal. So I was like, okay, well, I'll see if I know anybody. I want to be friendly. Jesus said, uh, if you want to have friends, be friendly, right? So I figured I'd send him a friend request. That's how you're friendly nowadays, right? But uh, <clears throat> so I was scrolling through there, and I kid you not, the first six or eight pictures I saw of suggested friends where every one of them was women, whether they were fake or not profiles, I don't know, women wearing next to nothing. And I, I scrolled through a couple, and I'm like, man, i got to get past this. And, I kept, and it was just like they kept going. I just backed out of it. I'm like, this is ridiculous. We, you can't do anything without being bombarded by sex now. That, that's, what, that's what our whole culture is nearly driven on, is... Uh, is hedonism nearly just pleasure here and now pleasure and uh, <clears throat> you know and it's in it's not a you know and even in uh, relationships and stuff uh, you know Ephesians five three it says that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. 
You know, even in relationships now and Christian dating, you know, whatever, it's the norm to have sex before you're married. It it just is. I I, I know people from other churches that unlike they're not married, unlike their six month anniversary or one year anniversary, they like get a hotel room at Hyatt or whatever. I'm like, Are you kidding me? And and they're publishing it all over Facebook. I I'm like there's no shame. Yeah, we're living in sexual morality. It's it's expected. It's that's that's what the the norm is now. And it's not right. Um, it, it's almost uh, it's like. Uh, but but I, I guess I believe that that that's a giant of sexual immorality, whether it be pornography, uh, fornication, whatever it is. It's expected now. But it's not right. It's not godly. Um, God doesn't bless it. He hates it. Um, but essentially, I think that there's a giant saying, you can't overcome it. You can't do any better than this. That's what everybody else is doing it. Who cares? Nobody has to know. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that no man lives and no man dies to himself. If you're living in sin, the sexual immorality, it's affecting somebody else. Absolutely. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-two. It tells us, Paul tells Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He tells him to get just run away from them, like whenever Joseph was. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, advanced uh, uh, Potiphar's wife made an advance at him. What did he do? He ran. He didn't stand there and fight. That's the only temptation that God tells us to run from is sexual lust. He tells us to run from sexual immorality. Don't stand and fight it because you can't overcome it. You can't overcome it. You need to run. I think things to do to overcome and defeat the giant you got to set wise and proper boundaries in relationships. If you have a problem with pornography, you need to you need to be held accountable. Um, if if you can't own a computer because you have a problem with pornography, get rid of your computer. Just get rid of it. Um, I know there's other websites and stuff where uh, men's accountability groups and stuff where uh, if you get on a certain website, it emails your friends. Telling them that you were on there. If you gotta do something like that, do it. You gotta do what you gotta do to defeat the giant. The, the next giant I'm gonna talk about is the giant of depression. Is one I have a little bit of experience with. Not as much as, uh, as, as our pastor has, has talked about in his own life that he's overcame, um, by the help of the Lord. Um, I had this thought, you know, so many times we get, we can get depressed when we start thinking about how, how lowly we are or our past or what we've done in the past and this, that, and the other. The one thought I had was uh, your past was the present whenever God saved you. That God saw you, He loved you and everything right then. And He saved you. It's your past now, but it was the present when He chose you. 
Deuteronomy uh, 32.10 tells us that we're the apple of God's eye. Um, Jesus, I don't remember where it's at, He said, uh, you have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you. You know, when we really, when we face the battle of depression, the giant of depression, we've got to know the Word of God. I forget where it is, but uh, Pastor, I'm sure you know, it says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. You know, because we are perishing. We don't know the Word of God. We don't study it like we used to. We, maybe we don't stu- haven't studied it ever. But we perish. We're weak. And we're dying because of a lack of knowledge. Because we don't know the Word of God. But when we get into the Word of God, we find there's nothing to be depressed about. God has, we are the apple of God's eye that He chose us. We didn't choose Him. He chose us. That we have, uh, we have self-worth in that. That we have value in that. Value, pastors talked about this. Value is how much someone is willing to pay for a certain thing. If I want to buy this microphone and the church wants to sell it to me for how much ever, if I, if I value it at ten dollars, and they sell it to me for $10, that's the value of it. If I buy it for $100, that's the value of it. The purchaser determines the value. Um, you know, in Second in, in Peter, it tells us that we're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but we're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So, what that tells us is that we are bought back. That The, re, the word redeemed is a banking term. It means bought back. And it tells us that we're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that we have self-worth, that we are valuable because of the price that was paid for us. What was that price? It was the, the price was the, the Son of God, that Jesus Christ Himself paid for us. He determined our value. When can we understand that? He has determined our value. Not us. Not what we've done. Not what we're doing right now. But He's the one who determined it. When you realize how valuable you are to God, there's nothing to be depressed about. When you realize how much God loves you, there's nothing to be depressed about. The giant of depression is nothing when you know the Word of God. Some of the easy Scriptures, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, But God commends or demonstrates His love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to pull up Romans 8 real quick, uh, not, not you guys, but Kim, um, I'm going to read this. This is about the love of God. Romans 8, verse 31 through 39 says, What shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, 
how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us. There's nothing to be upset about with that. Nothing to be depressed about when you when you get the Word of God inside of you and it and it, it just resonates in your life. We, we, that's where we determine who we are, is through the Word of God. What our value is uh, and, and how we are loved is through the Word of God. That's how we defeat the giant of depression when he comes against us. The giant of anxiety, something I have all too much experience with. Um, I stand before you tonight somebody who I literally, I would go out to eat and I was so fearful, I was so paranoid. I kid you not, everywhere I went, I thought somebody was going to poison my food or my drink or anything like that. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of anxiety and paranoia I used to live in. As a Christian... I mean, those before I was saved also, but as a Christian, I lived that. That's no way to be. That's the giant of anxiety. He's got to be slain. Um, you know, I, it's just just so much different. One of the biggest things that brings on my anxiety that I, one thing I'm I'm still battling it. It's a continual deal for me. I'm getting more victorious all the time. I'm winning more battles all the time. But one of the things that causes it for me is I don't believe that God's going to protect me. He says He will, but I don't believe it. That's what causes my anxiety. You have to realize what it is what your what the problem is, I guess, in your life before you can defeat it. Uh, you don't need to go through all these different programs and this, that, and the other. Uh, I, I do recommend seeking counsel, wise counsel, uh, with our, our pastor or Miss Lori or, or somebody else, whoever. Uh, but so much of it, the power is in the Word of God. The power is not through worldly counsel. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That we don't take our counsel. We don't get our, our go to Dr. Phil or Oprah or whoever to get victory. The victory comes through the Word of God. It comes through the Spirit of God. The Word of God is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between the, 
the soul and the spirit and, and, and bone from the marrow. That's, that's a sharp thing. It, two things that we see so close, as so, so often we see them as the same thing. The Word of God is so powerful, so sharp, it can divide them and determine and tell us what, what it is in our life that needs to be changed or what it is where we need to be encouraged. But anxiety is more or less the fear of the future and the unknown. Miss Lori testified about, about worry earlier and about how worry basically it opens the door for many, many things uh, of fear and, and all that. But basically, in my anxiety, and maybe you guys experience it too, I don't know, I'm just trying to be real with you guys tonight. Is like I said, I don't. Whenever I'm anxious, whenever I have a panic attack, it's because I don't believe God is who He says He is. I just don't believe it. I still think that I've got to be in control of this situation and that I can control it and I'm going to look out for myself and do this on my own. But He's saying, no. Take me at my word. That's what He wants. He wants us to take Him at His Word. That we, If we would just get into the Word of God, we would see that God is who He says He is. I'm going to read this real quick, I think. Okay. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 91 real quick. He who dwells in the, in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and My fortress, My God in whom I will trust. If God's your refuge and fortress, that sounds pretty safe to me. That sounds pretty protected to me. For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness, not my faithfulness, but His faithfulness, is a shield and a buckler You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. This last two verses, three verses, is God speaking to David, or speaking to us. The first part was us to Him. Now this is Him to us. Because He, being us, holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Sounds pretty safe to me. So why don't I believe God is who He says He is? I don't know. I don't know why I don't. I guess I need to to hold fast to those promises. I need to memorize more Scripture. When I'm feeling anxious, I need to quote Scripture. That's probably part of it. Because I don't believe God is who He says He is. Do you? Do you believe God is who He says He is? 
In chapter 11 of Numbers, we find that the people were murmuring about the manna and about the quail. Actually, I believe mostly about the manna. They were like, okay, God, and and times before this, why did you bring us to the wilderness? Just to let us die? We could have stayed in Egypt and died. We had it good there. We were slaves, but we had it good. We had food to eat and water to drink. What did you bring us here? To die? Uh, and they complained about the food. And I don't know what, how filling manna was. It's probably like eating crackers. I don't know. It probably wasn't too filling. They wanted T-bone steaks. But they were complaining about it. And then we find in chapter 13, after the spies bring back the big cluster of grapes, They saw what the food was like in the promised land. But they didn't want to go. They didn't want to go to the promised land because of the giants. What it comes down to, they didn't want to change bad enough to fight for it. They didn't want the good food bad enough to fight for it. They didn't want to have to face a few giants so they could have things good and victorious. They didn't want to have to do all that. They didn't want to have to work for it. They, uh, verse 30, I'm going to read this. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. I kind of got ahead of myself. Caleb said, let's go. Who cares if there's giants? Who cares if there's six other groups of people? Let's go. God's given it to us. Let's go. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against people, for they are stronger than we are. For they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. I think, I didn't even think about this until the Lord just brought this to my mind. They didn't see themselves for who they were. They saw themselves in their small stature as the children of Israel. They saw themselves as nobodies, that they weren't uh, strong enough to go and fight these people. They said, we're like grasshoppers to them. They didn't realize that they were the children of Israel. They were the chosen people of God. Just like you and I, we're the chosen people of God. We, We are strong. We are victorious by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not he, or it's not us, but it's he that's in us. The Bible says, "Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world." So, when we see ourselves for who we are, then we can be victorious. Then we can take on the giants. But going back just a second, the people they they were murmuring about the food. They saw the food in the promised land, but they they were going to let a few battles keep them from it. They didn't, they didn't want 
the victory. They didn't want the blessings of God, the abundant, victorious life enough to do anything about it. Uh, another thing they knew, they didn't know, is uh, they were forgetting that the enemy possessed the land, but the Lord owned it. You can't promise or give something that's not yours. God had promised it to the children of Israel. It was His. He had given it to them. They had to fight for it, but it was theirs. The enemy possessed it, but it was theirs. The enemy, right now, if you're not living a victorious Christian life, the enemy possesses something in your life. God owns it, and He's given it to you. He's given you the victory, but you're allowing the enemy to possess it. Numbers 14.11 And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise Me? Chris, if you'll go ahead and come help me get stopped. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise Me? And how long will they not believe in Me? in spite of all the signs I have done among them. They didn't believe in God. They didn't believe that He was who He says He was, who He he says He is, because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. They didn't believe God was who He says He is, though. That's why they didn't inhabit the land. God had promised it. They weren't willing to fight for it because they didn't know who God was. They didn't believe Him. And He did many signs among them. In Egypt, in the wilderness, all that. He did all these signs, miracles, and wonders to show them, hey, I'm God. I've got this. I guess they didn't want to fight for it. He promised it to them, though. I'll tell you one thing about living a victorious Christian life. Living in the promised land right now, in the here and now, You gotta fight. It's not easy. It's a battle. You're gonna have to face some giants. You're gonna have to slay some giants. You're going to have to. But God has promised it. He's promised it. He is who He says He is. Read the Word of God and find out. We find out that None of the spies and none of the children of Israel possessed the land of Canaan. Only Joshua and Caleb and their descendants went in. God caused a plague to fall on those spies, the other ten, and He caused all the rest of them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die. God still led them in the wilderness. He still provided manna for them and quail and fresh water and all that. But He... uh he led them in circles. That's the thing is if we can still follow Jesus and God will provide for us if we come Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night and hear Pastor Joplin and Branson preach and we do our 30 second devotional in the morning, we pray for two and a half minutes. We're, we can still follow the Lord in circles. That's not a victorious life. There's some giants that need to be slain. 
but there's great abundance of life to be obtained. I want to leave you with this. It's kind of, if Branson can quote rap songs, I'm going to quote this. John Wayne said, Courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. You know, when there's a fight coming, it, it might be at your door right now. But if you want a victorious Christian life, you have to be courageous. You have to be willing to take on that giant face to face. David, the Bible tells us that he ran towards the giant. He wasn't afraid. So, these altars are open if you need to pray. Just remember that God has promised the land. He's promised the victory. It is yours. Amen.